Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Jake Sullivan, national security adviser to U.S. President Joe Biden, traveled to Saudi Arabia on July the 27th to meet with Prime Minister and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. This is Sullivan's second trip to the kingdom in less than three months, while U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also visited the country in June. According to a White House readout, both sides discussed bilateral and regional matters, including initiatives to advance a common vision for a more peaceful, secure, prosperous, and stable Middle East region interconnected with the world. Now, the discussions are said to be exploratory talks for a possible U.S.-Saudi security pact that will facilitate the normalization of ties between Israel and Saudi Arabia, although any deal would be complex and time-consuming, if possible at all. Is the Biden administration racing to make a splash in the Middle East before re-election campaign starts? Is this part of an effort to curtail South-China relations which have been on the rise? And how realistic is such a deal at this moment? For more details, I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy from North Carolina, the U.S., by Klaus Laris, Professor of History and International Affairs at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, by geopolitical researcher Salman all Ansari. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us, especially for our guests in America and Saudi Arabia. Let me go to Jahai first. First of all, as I said, senior U.S. officials have been busy going to uh, Saudi Arabia. What exactly is on the agenda? Are the media reports credible that they are holding exploratory talks on the possible big deal that may see Israel and Saudi Arabia having a rapprochement? Top U.S. officials have been a frequent visit to, to Saudi Arabia for multiple reasons. One of the most important reasons, of course, you mentioned is the possible breakthrough of establishing or normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Uh, that's what the United States wanted, and that's Biden, Biden's administration's top priority before the election. Uh, as you mentioned, if they can accomplish this, that will be one of the major uh, diplomatic su success in the Middle East and showing uh, that the U.S. still remain as a major actor in the region. Now, uh, if you remember, Sullivan gave a very important speech in early May, and he pointed out that the U.S. Uh, still uh, want to play a major role and want to enhance relationship with Gulf states, and particularly Saudi Arabia is at the center of the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. He uh, stated that uh, the U.S. still want to get involved and want to push diplomacy as well as deterrence in the region. Of course, diplomacy refers to this relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And deterrence means that uh, the new alliance should, again, uh, continue to deter Iran and Iran's ambition to achieve uh, nuclear power. So at this point, I think the overall strategy of the U.S. in the region is still trying to continue to isolate Iran and trying to push uh, reconciliation between uh, Israel and other Arab states. Uh, but the problem is, of course, Russia and China still have uh, very strong ties in the region, and China's influence is, is increasing in the region. So uh, on the surface, U.S. is saying, oh, it's, it's about bilateral relations, it's not about China. But essentially, uh, because China has recently bro brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, 
the U.S. now has this uh, sense of urgency to try to push forward and move more resources into the Middle East and trying mm. to break the deal to show their presence. Okay. Well, let me go to our guest in the Middle East uh, um, now, Mr. Al Ansari. What is the talk of town at this moment? What um, is your or the Saudi perception of the goals on the mind of the U.S. officials? I actually agree totally with your honorable guest. And he actually took the words that I actually wanted to say. And as far as we all know that the Biden administration did a lot of damage to the historic and strategic relations with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the Saudis stood firm and pursued their interests uh, decisively. And they positioned themselves in the center of global politics at this changing world's order, that's for sure. Uh, furthermore, Riyadh has shown to the US and the world that its sovereignty is a red line that cannot be crossed in any circumstances. And if the United States is looking for a client state, then they should not think of the kingdom at all whatsoever. And to answer your question, I think the US has three reasons to wanting to war its relations with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. One is that they realize that they made a big mistake uh, when they called Saudi Arabia a pariah, when they wanted to isolate Saudi Arabia, which is the heart of the Arab and Muslim world. And right now they want to rectify the trajectory of this indispensable uh, relations. Uh, second is because the, definitely of the presidential elections and uh, the Biden administration is trying to score a big win in the Middle East because that going to be like the one and only uh, legacy that they would be having in foreign policy. Third is definitely to, to, to circumvent and better say to avoid losing the most important nation in the Arab and Muslim uh, world. And, and there are no uh, official reports actually with regards to, like from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, with regards to the nature of agreements that have been uh, discussed uh, with the United States. But I can assure you two things. One, that it's a complete wishful thinking to propose a Saudi-Israeli normalization for free. It's going to be a wishful thinking. Nothing is going to be for free. The price tag will be centered on giving uh, the Palestinians uh, their rights to self-determination and for the two, for two uh, United Nations uh, Security Council's accord to be completely applied and enacted. Second is that I believe that Saudi Arabia is definitely flexible on a multitude of things and the Palestinian cause is not one of them because it's purely a humanitarian cause that needs to be rectified. And uh, with regards to the overall, uh, I think uh, like the thing with Israel right now, as you know, that the Arab governments are moving right now towards being more moderate than ever, while the Israeli government is going to the opposite side, unfortunately. And actually, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, he has said it beautifully. He said the far-right Israeli government has one of two options. One, to continue the annexation of the West Bank or having normalization with Saudi Arabia and the wider Muslim world. All and right. they can't have it both ways. That's mm. what he said. So mm. I think uh, what he said is uh, really uh, true and that's what we believe in. Okay. Uh, Professor Laris, what is your engagement of the kind of deal that's being weighed between the United States and Saudi Arabia? First of all, uh, it's an ambitious deal. Um, how can the, the Biden administration expect that this deal could materialize in the short time that is, uh, you know, still left between the re-election campaign starts and the difficulties that it may face in trying to uh, realize any deal of such kind? It uh, certainly is a very ambitious deal indeed, and I think the Biden administration is fully aware of that. That is one reason why Jake Sullivan is going to travel to Saudi Arabia 
three times when he comes to the next meeting about the peace talks in Saudi Arabia in a week's time. I think we clearly see a reconciliation between the United States and Saudi Arabia. It is, of course, not correct that it's all the American fault that Saudi Arabia-American relations were not good in the recent past. We know about the very controversial murder of Washington Post journalist Khashoggi that has isolated uh, Saudi Arabia in the entire world. And now Saudi Arabia is making a strenuous effort to overcome that. And the Biden administration is also prepared to overcome that and to move towards Saudi Arabia. One of the reasons clearly is to get a deal done between Saudi Arabia and Israel. It is clear that the hardline Israeli government led by Netanyahu will find it very difficult to make concessions on the Palestinian issue. Biden knows that such a deal doesn't come for free. Of course not. Saudi Arabia will demand concessions regarding the Palestinians, but also perhaps about the development of civilian nuclear weapons in Saudi Arabia, which is also highly controversial. And apart from Saudi Arabia, no one else in the Middle East actually supports that. And neither does the, uh, the Biden administration, many other countries around the world. So this is all very, very difficult. But it is a good sign that the United States is joining the call of Saudi Arabia to talk about Russia and Ukraine in a week's time. Uh, Saudi Arabia is trying to set itself up as a mediator in, in an international war. And it is part of its efforts to improve its image in the world. Also, they uh, saw the uh, interest in terminating the war against Yemen, that very brutal war which Saudi Arabia has led against Yemen. There's a peace, uh, uh, an armistice at, at work right now. But of course, it, we still want to see a permanent peace. And all that Saudi Arabia is prepared to be flexible about, and that is supported by the Biden administration. I would not agree uh, with my Chinese uh, colleagues, or I agree with most of what uh, you said, but I wouldn't agree that it's about mostly about China or luring Saudi Arabia away from China. That might be a side effect, but I think it's more about Russia, that Saudi Arabia is not moving closer into the Russian camp, but is moving away from its neutral position in the Russian-Ukrainian war towards the Western okay. side, towards the American. Ukrainian All side. Right. And I think that's uh, one of the uttermost uh, goals of Jake Sullivan when he comes to Saudi Arabia mm. next week. Mm. Mr. Zhao, your reaction, if you have any, and also how sincere <clears throat> does is the United States in trying to broker a deal, uh, giving all the kind of objectives that it wants to achieve, you know, the re-election or curtailing China-Saudi relations, amending ties. What, how much of the U.S. effort is really for the region, for the Palestinian people, for instance, for the normalization of Israel's relationship with, uh, with uh, Arab countries in the region? First of all, um, Jake Sullivan made it very clear just last October, the U.S. published its new national security uh, report. And in that, uh, he said that the most important thing in the next uh, so-called decisive decade is the geopolitical competition with China. So the U.S. is actually seeing the world through the lens of this geopolitical competition. Uh, it's very hard to, to say that, uh, I mean, at this point, any U.S. policy has nothing to do with China. I'm not saying that uh, any decision by the U.S. in the Middle East is absolutely about China, but China is always in the background. And this competition, particularly the competition of influence in the Middle East and uh, in a larger Muslim world, is uh, ongoing. 
So I would say, you know, how Sullivan sincere? must yeah. bear this Sorry in mind. Sorry for interrupting. So the time is again, very, Yeah. How yeah. sincere do you think the U.S. really so, so is? So based on that, yeah, so based on that, I think uh, on the one hand, uh, uh, America is uh, sincere on behalf of uh, Israel, wanted to, you know, really have a reconciliation uh, between Israel and other countries to make peace in the region. However, on the other hand, uh, from the point of view of the Palestinian people, it's not sincere at all because uh, the U.S. has never made enough effort to push forward uh, to safeguard the rights of the Palestinian people and try to push forward right. with, you know, under UN Security Council resolution. Um, Mr. Al-Ansari, uh, a question for from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, because it is written in that opinion piece you mentioned that uh, Saudi Arabia possibly wants from the U.S. a NATO-level mutual security treaty, a civilian nuclear program, which was mentioned, and the purchase of more advanced weapons. Is that what Saudi Arabia wants from the United Would they trade or compromise their relationship with their biggest trading partner, which is China, for uh, a better relationship with the United States. Yeah, I think the United States understood. And right keep now, it short, please. I have limited yeah, sure. the amount of time. The United States, I think, understood that the Saudis will never be a client state in the way they want them to be. They're going to be a sovereign nation that will have multiple relations with everyone. China is the biggest trading partner for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the biggest trading partner of 130 countries in the world, including the United States itself. With regards to your question, there are three things, as you said, but they have not been mentioned by the government of Saudi Arabia, all about leaks in the media, in the U.S. media, a security alliance, nuclear cooperation, and a two-state solution for the Palestinians. These are the thing, the three major things that the kingdom uh, would love to see materialize for the whole normalization thing to, to, to continue. All right, we are going to leave it there, a very contentious issue for sure, but uh, time is very limited. Thank you to Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategies, Klaus Laris, Professor of History and International Affairs at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and Salman Al-Ansari, geopolitical researcher, joining us from Riyadh. When we come back, the U.S. House of Representatives last week passed a bill to reinterpret a 1971 U.N. resolution concerning China. Have they got nothing better to do? Stay tuned. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. The U.S. House of Representatives passed a bill last week titled the Taiwan International Solidarity Act. The co-author of the bill, Congressman John Curtis from the state of Utah, said it builds on a previous law to reaffirm that the U.S. will oppose any efforts by the PRC to, quote-unquote, interfere with Taiwan's ability to conduct a diplomacy and participate in international organizations. The bill states that a U.N. resolution passed in 1971, which recognized the PRC as the only legitimate government of China to at the United Nations, Nations does not apply to Taiwan. In an editorial piece, China's official newspaper China Daily warns that the U.S. is attempting to quote-unquote remove the cornerstone of the One China principle by seeking to reinterpret the resolution numbered 2758. Who is John Curtis? 
How is it possible for the U.S. Congress to pass a domestic law concerning the legal status of a part of another sovereign country? Should this trigger other countries to start taking similar steps concerning the U.S.? I'm pleased to be joined by Zhao Hai once again, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy and from Bangkok, Thailand by Brian Becker, a former U.S. Marine and geopolitical analyst. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So let's read a little bit from the resolution 2758 if people do not know it better the u.s bill that's just passed says that this resolution does not address the issue of representation of taiwan and its people in the united nations or any related organization but the resolution clearly says and it shows here it decides to restore all its rights to the People's Republic of China and to recognize the representatives of its government as the only legitimate representatives of China to the United Nations and to expel forthwith the representatives of the former leaders of Taiwan from the place which they unlawfully occupy at the United Nations and all organizations related to it. Mr. Zhao, which part of this resolution that can be interpreted otherwise? Well, nothing. Uh, actually, uh, the resolution 2758 is very clear. It's about the representation of China in the United Nations. And that is very clear. That does not cover any sovereignty issue, whether or not Taiwan belongs to uh, the bigger part of China. Actually, prior to the vote, there are other votes on this issue. There are other proposals putting Taiwan separate from China, and they're all voted down. So it's very clear that this vote alone shows that Taiwan is absolutely under the sovereignty of China, and there's no other interpretation should exist. Globally, I think uh, the international community understand this very clearly. So the only question here is whether or not those uh, you know, voted for this bill, the American politicians, who have, are really ignorant about history, about America's own foreign policy, or they have other intentions, they have other agenda behind it, and it's very clear it's a second. Mr. Becker, do you think these Congress people or those who voted for to pass this law ever read the resolution? Uh, the resolution is very short, by the way. That sentence that I read is about it. I, I believe that uh, the United States, the U.S. government, they're very well aware of the reality surrounding the status of Taiwan. The U.S. State Department's official website recognizes a one-China policy where Taiwan is a part of China. There's only one legitimate government of China, the People's Republic of China. It explicitly says that the U.S. has no diplomatic relations with Taiwan and that the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence. So how could that be? And yet now they're pursuing this new act, which seeks to force the world, the international community, to recognize Taiwan as something that even the U.S. State Department doesn't recognize it as, as a so-called country. Mr. Valetic, sorry to get your uh, family name wrong just now. I apologize for that. But uh, um, do, you, do we know anything about the authors of this bill? Why, for instance, was John Curtis, uh, the congressman from the state of Utah, and Congressman Jerry Connolly from Virginia, co, uh, who, who is co-chairing the uh, Congressional Taiwan Caucus, who are they and what's their business with this issue? But they, they represent a very long-standing keystone in American foreign policy, which is to uh, eliminate any peer or near-peer competitor. The, uh, the concept of encircling and containing China stretches all the way back to the end of World War II. 
Uh, we remember General Douglas MacArthur saying Taiwan was an unsinkable aircraft carrier the U.S. could use to maintain primacy over Asia. And this is a sentiment that has stayed with Washington and, and the interests that back it up to and including present day. Mr. Zhao, the act has already passed the U.S. House of Representatives and is set to proceed to the Senate and the White House. Um, President Biden may sign it into law or may not. What's the likelihood? Is it ever going to be law? If so, how damaging will it be? Well, uh, first of all, let's, let me remind the audience. Actually, this uh, so-called bill is very short. It's only about four pages long. And it's actually an update of the 2019 uh, bill that's called Taipei Act. Uh, the update is actually trying to reinforce uh, the idea that uh, Taiwan is somehow has this semi-sovereign status. Therefore, it's, it's qualified to participate in international organizations like the World Health Organization or International Aviation Organization or Interpol. Uh, that is actually only sovereign states can participate. And the reason for that, of course, they wanted to, uh, you know, make a breakthrough so that in the future they can incrementally put Taiwan on the trajectory uh, to become an independent state. And that is very, that is the work of a pro-Taiwan uh, independent forces in the United States. And their major effort is in the U.S. Congress supporting the so-called Taiwan caucuses, which is the largest caucus in the United States. So again, I think in the Congress, because right now House is controlled by the Republicans, that's why it passed this bill. But in the Senate, it's very difficult. And even if passed the, the Congress, it's very difficult again for the U.S. president to approve of that point because that's directly in contradiction with the current U.S. governmental stance. Well, what's the U.S. strategic interest in the eyes of these congressmen to, you know, to mind the, the business of who should represent China in the United Nations when 182 countries are recognizing the PRC as the only legitimate government of China, representative of China, and the U.N. does not rec recognize Taiwan? I mean, they've got a whole host of domestic problems, poverty, so on and so forth. Um, it's, I know it's a very uh, maybe emotionally charged question, Brian, but uh, have they got nothing better to do, really? Well, I, I think a lot of Americans would, would agree with that, that the United States should be mining its many problems back at home. But unfortunately, U.S. foreign policy seems to be above all of that. They have pursued hegemony around the globe against both Russia and China, all the nations along the periphery. This has been a, a longstanding foreign policy objective that they seem to be intent on pursuing at all other costs, including at the expense of the American people, their peace, stability, and prosperity. Yeah, so what's going to happen next, uh, Mr. Zhao? Um, if you don't see the possibility of, of this act ever um, passing or being signed into law, uh, what could follow? I mean, this, this playing the Taiwan card tactic um, doesn't look like it's going to, to be abandoned anytime soon by these Congress people. Well, uh, first of all, for the previous question, I, I believe those congressmen really have nothing else to do because they're so polarized, the United States, and uh, so divided in Congress, they have no uh, you know, common or consensus on any other issue but China. So right now, that's why they're pushing very hard to suppress China, to coerce China, to use Taiwan card uh, as anti-China to show their political, uh, you know, to get, get political benefits. Uh, and the next step for this, even if this law does not pass, they will go move forward with another law, which is so-called strategic competition with China 2.0. Uh, 
that law has been tried in the last uh, previous Congress, and now they wanted to do that again. So I don't think they will give up this opportunity to continue to pursue the China issue, because, again, this is the only thing they can agree upon. Oh. Well, um, from a theoretical point of view, Brian, if the U U.S. Congress can enact a domestic law to mine other people's internal business, uh, does that sound strange to me? Because that sounds very far-fetched far to me. If everybody starts doing that, the world is going to be a mess. I mean, China can enact a law about, I don't know, Nebraska or, or, or California. Absolutely. And this is all part of the exceptionalist mindset that uh, the U.S. government has and maintains. Uh, and it's one that is only acceptable when it is America being exceptional. They, they would not tolerate any other nation doing this in regards to their own interests, even if it was in regards to an issue much closer home. The United States is crossing the entire Pacific Ocean to meddle in China's internal political affairs in regards to the island of Taiwan. Another question, however, when it comes to the benefit and well-being of people in Taiwan, the question is, some people are saying, when you deny them membership of the United Nations, for instance, the World Health Organization, you may deny also their right to receive good health care. Um, Mr. Zhao, under the current arrangement, is it possible? I mean, are there rights to access the public goods offered by these organizations being denied when they are not accepted? as a sovereign member state? Well, of course, there are channels that uh, the uh, Taiwan people can uh, really enjoy or participate in the international uh, organization uh, meaningfully. Uh, that is to, uh, you know, uh, actually abide by the current regulation because China is the whole represent representative uh, of uh, China, including uh, Taiwan, and Taiwan can communicate with the mainland and through mainland get the instructions or participate and contribute to the international organizations. So it's nonsensical to say that uh, Taiwan people are excluded uh, from those international organizations and therefore create a vacuum or danger because of this. Uh, so again, this is a problem created by US politicians intentionally. Uh, those uh, other things can be resolved easily uh, through dialogues. And, and the other thing is, of course, the current Taiwan local leadership uh, is trying to use this opportunity to, again, advocate for uh, Taiwan independence. And uh, they're using and buying out American politicians to serve their purpose. And uh, there's a joke, of, of course, around saying why the law is passed at this time, because uh, it's about summertime and those uh, congressmen need a vacation in Taiwan. <laughs> Well, that's, that's quite pathetic if it is true. Anyway, we have to leave it there. We've spent enough time on this nonsensical bill. Many thanks to Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, and Brian Berletic, a former U.S. Marine and geopolitical analyst. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.